Corinthians chapter 11, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, this letter has been such a blessing going through, we'll continue on this morning. Chapter 11, verse 5, this is Paul by the Holy Spirit. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one for what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the region of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that I may that many boast according to their flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Let's pray. Father, we uh, need you to understand uh, the, the word, your word this morning, Lord. And I just pray, Father, even as Jesus, your son Jesus, every page, every word of the Bible... Father, that um, we would see him this morning in your word, in the teaching, Father. I just pray that I, Lord, would honor you in the way that I speak, in the way that I represent your son. Lord, do not let me let one word fall to the ground, Lord. I just pray that we would all, not one person leave this morning, Lord, Missing what you have for them, Lord. We don't want to miss your best for us. And Father, we're so thankful that you, Lord, more than we could ever ask or imagine or ever want, you want our best for us. Just like we as parents want our best for our children, Lord, how much more you want your best for us. And even as you, your word says, even as you gave your, your only son, how much more will you give us all things? Lord, we seek all things this morning from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So we are reading Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. As many of you know, much of the New Testament is made up of Paul's letters uh, to uh, various churches that had sprung up uh, not too long after Jesus' death, and I don't know if any of you have ever wondered, 
when you read these letters to these churches, and I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, I wonder where these churches came from. I wonder how they started up. Who started them? And, and how, how did it all happen? How did all that happen? The church starting. If you've ever wondered that, I have good news for you. Actually, in the book of Acts, you can actually read how many of these churches got started. And I, I strongly recommend that before you read Paul's letters, Galatians, Corinthians, Ephesians, Thessalonians, that you go to the book of Acts and you, you read about how these churches got started. Now, one of the things that comes across in the books of, uh, book of Acts which is short of acts of the Holy Spirit. It's how the Holy Spirit, uh, his, his acts, the, the history that was, came about by a wonderful move of the, of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that really comes across in the, in the book of Acts is just the amount of excitement that was there when these churches first started. The joy, the wonder the astonishment of something new. Acts chapter 13 actually is a good example of that. It says that um, as was his custom, Paul was sent out, the apostle Paul was sent out to really to start churches amongst the, no, amongst the non-Jews. And he was sent out and what he would do the, though is he would start off in the synagogue because in the synagogue there were Gentiles, non-Jews who w- were observing the service. They were sort of excluded from it, but they could observe and sort of take part in the glow that uh, comes forth any time sort of the Word of God is declared anywhere. And so he went there on the Sabbath, and uh, he went into a synagogue. Actually, it was Antioch in the region of Pisidia. There was actually two Antiochs. This was the one in, uh, not in what's co- what is modern-day Turkey, I believe, but this is uh, in, in, in the area of Greece. And... Uh, he began to speak and read from the Old Testament all the verses that were promising the Messiah. And in Acts thirteen thirty nine, uh, speaking of the Messiah of Jesus Christ, he said, "By him, Jesus Christ, everyone who believes is justified from all things that of which you could not be justified through the law." That's what he declared. And it says in verse 42, a couple uh, verses later, that after he left the synagogue that day, it says that the Gentiles begged him. They pleaded with him to come back, that the very same words could be taught the the following uh, Sabbath. So Paul came back the next Sabbath. It says in um, Acts chapter 13, verse 44, when he did, it says almost the whole city was there. Almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. And so what comes across in the book of Acts in such a wonderful way is just how attracted people were, how astonished they were at this message, how drawn they were uh, uh, to the message of grace. Again, what did Paul declare? By Jesus Christ, everyone who believes, is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by God through the law. They never heard anything like this before. They hadn't heard that. And that's why they're literally begging him to, to return. Grace. It is like water to the soul. Our souls, our hearts are just so dried up, parched up from the world. Grace is like water to the soul. By Jesus Christ, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by God through the law. Uh, it's a... It's a a verse there which is loaded with uh, information about grace. Every man uh, and woman, uh, you know, why did they, why, why did they react in, in, in the way that they did, that he's literally leaving and they're pleading with him, come back, please, do not leave this city. Why did they react like that? Well, because every man and woman knows instinctively God has put the instinct in them 
that no matter how well they behave, we all know that no, no matter how well we behave, no matter how much we stay out of trouble, no matter how perfectly we have met the mark in our life, no matter how much we've made up for bad stuff we've done in our past, however we followed the law, the rules, obeyed the rules, whatever, we know, every human being has always known, that we still have a problem with God. We, we still got a problem. Oh, we try to convince ourselves in our own minds that we're okay. We try to justify our lifestyles and we do things. We make little arguments with ourselves. Well, you know, if my life was put on a scale, you know, the scale that, that who is it? That woman who holds up that scale and there's two sides of the scale. And, and uh, on one side, there's all the good things that we've done. And on the other side, there's all, all the bad things. Well, we know and, and we convince ourselves, well, the good things in the very end, uh, it'll outweigh the bad. We'll get into heaven. We'll be okay. And we're okay with God. We embrace a philosophy or religion that says, well, really, you know, we don't have a problem with God. We have this nagging voice, you know, in our hearts that doesn't go away that, no, no, you do have a problem with God. But, you know, we, we try to run away from that and embrace a, a religion or a philosophy that says, no, you don't have a problem with God. Or uh, we may embrace a religion that says, well, yes, you have a problem with God, but if you follow this set of rules, this lifestyle, if you behave in this way, then you won't have a problem with God. The, God, the, the problem with God will go away. And then we do all these things, but the nagging stays there. I got a problem with God. I got a problem with God. I got a problem with God. Deep inside, every man and woman knows, no matter how they fight, how hard they fight, they have a problem. There's a problem. There's a fundamental problem that they are unable to overcome, unable to solve. On Saturday nights, um, we have a five-week training witnessing program that people are going through. They're memorizing uh, a gospel presentation, sharing their faith, and... Uh, I think I shared this with you a few weeks ago, but one of the illustrations they're memorizing, and we call the three sins a day illustration, uh, in which uh, we, you know, we tell people, look, you, you know, the Bible says that man has a problem. We all have sinned and fall short of the righteousness of God. And the Bible says there's no one good, no, not one. It's an actual verse in the Bible. And sometimes people say, well, that's, that's not really what I've been told and grew up with and that type of thing. We say, and we give them this illustration, well, you know, considering what everything the Bible says is sinning, the Bible says lying, cheating, and stealing is sin, but it also says thinking about those things is sin. I mean, when you, and so when you add all these things up, don't you think I'd be doing pretty good if I only sinned three times in one day? Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right. You know, it's amazing. I, I have been sharing this illustration for 20 years. I've given, it, given off this illustration hundreds of times. I can't remember one time someone didn't agree with that. Well, you're right. I mean, considering everything that's wrong, yeah, you're right. You're doing pretty good if you sin three times a day. Well, then you say, well, the thing is, think about what you just said. You disagree with me, but, but over a year, that's a thousand sins. Over 70, 70 years, the average life of a human being, although that average life is going up and up, that's 70,000 sins. Now, do you think, you'd be, you know, you think a human judge would just say, okay, no problem, no problem. You don't have a problem. Go, go. If you ever went before the judge and said, I have 70,000 infractions of the law, I have 70,000 DWIs, DUIs, course not. They would throw you in jail and throw away the key. And everyone always agrees with that. I, 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 I do not remember one person who didn't agree with me on that. People know there's a problem. And they live every day with it. And some are able to cope it, with it better than others. Many people actually are able to sort of stuff this feeling, this nagging feeling, somewhere they compartmentalize it or something and, and hide it away and, and try to really make pretend that it's not really there. Uh, but it is there. It's never going away. Why? Why is that? 
because God himself put it there. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this. God has put eternity in the heart of man, in the heart of woman. God has put eternity in your heart. Every man and woman, he's put eternity in their heart. What does, it, what does that mean? Well, it's a deep nagging, a sanctified nagging, a sense that they get a problem with God and it's a problem that only God himself can deal with. A problem only God can solve. So the people living in the Roman world and the cities that Paul and other Christians uh, came into, remember Jesus had sent them out, go into all the world. So they went out into the known world. They were no different like everyone else who's ever lived. They were doing a, a whole host of things, uh, uh, a million things, whatever, trying to, to make this nagging voice go away. And so the, city after city, uh, Paul comes into the city and, and, and he declares something they've never heard. He said, you do have a problem with God. You have a big problem with God. The problem is your sin and there's nothing that you can do about that problem. Nothing that you can do about that problem. But God can. He already has. He sent his son into the world to do just that. And by him, Jesus, everyone who believes is justified by God from all things from which you could not be justified by the law. You could not be justified by any kind of lifestyle, however perfect, however good. And, and, and you know, the, the two most striking words about that verse is the, the, the words everyone and all. Everyone to the Gentiles, a, a, a Gentile and the Jew. That word, everyone, everyone who believes is justified by God. That word, everyone, to the Gentiles and the Jews listening to Paul, that was a loaded term, an unbelievably loaded term. And what do I mean by that? Well, Gentiles, non-Jews, they were permitted uh, to observe the services at the Jewish synagogue, but uh, really they were very much excluded. Uh, they, they, even if you, um, they were very much excluded. Why? Well, because if you were an adult male and you really wanted to join this group of people, you had to be circumcised. And they had like some second thoughts about doing that as an adult. And, and the Gentiles would listen to the services and the Jews, um, if, if you look through the Old Testament, they talk a lot about their genealogy, about who they descended from. And they, so they'd be listening to these services and they'd be listening, there would be a lot of talk about well, I'm descended and I go back to this tribe and I go back to this son of Jacob of Israel. And, and, and the Gentiles, well, they didn't have, they were, you know, many of us sort of uh, feel like this this morning maybe. I'm not related to any good particular thing. Man, you go back in my family line, you find some pretty dark things back there, you know. The Gentiles didn't have any kind of family line that they could be talking about. And so they would also be listening in these synagogues to these services, and the Jews, they talked a lot about the privilege of growing up with the Bible, the, the scriptures, the Old Testament, and um, uh, memorizing it, learning it, knowing it. And, and the Gentiles, they're thinking, well, I didn't grow up with any of this stuff. I didn't know any of it. And so here comes a guy into the city, and uh, he's saying, by Jesus Everyone, not just the Jews, everyone is justified, meaning no more problem with God, from all things, meaning nothing they had done was so bad that it fell outside of this justification. There's no sin too bad. And it was offered by Jesus to anyone who believed. You mean, I don't have to like do anything? I just have to believe? And this guy, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's backing up 
everything that he said with the Old Testament, which they had been hearing uh, week after week uh, taught by these people. Uh, but they had been led to believe that they were excluded from the kingdom of God. But this, this man, Paul, is saying, you know, he's backing up this whole statement with all kinds of scripture and reading from uh, the Old Testament. And so the Gentiles heard this, and when the service entered, again, ended, rather, they, again, they, said, they begged him, do not go away. Don't leave this city, please. Next Sabbath, uh, come again. We'll bring our friends. We'll bring our family. We'll bring our co-workers. And he did come back, and it says again in Acts 13, Almost the whole city was there. And verse 48 says, when the Gentiles uh, heard him speak, share again from the word of God, it says they were glad, they glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been, been appointed to eternal life believed. And so this is how these churches got started. This is how they started. People, all of a sudden, for the first time ever, hearing and understanding about the grace of God. It's by grace that you are saved, not by your good works. Lest any man try to boast before God. God, I, you know, I, I'm good enough. I've done something good enough to deserve uh, uh, heaven, deserve a relationship with you. No. No man is good, and everyone can be justified simply by believing and trusting uh, their lives to Jesus Christ. And there was just this outpouring of life and joy and, and men and women who had never heard this message, the peace descended on their life, which was, uh, came about by being filled with the Holy Spirit, which the Word of God promises uh, will happen to every man and woman who believes in Jesus Christ. And, and so this is how these churches got started. But with the good came the bad and the ugly. But with the good came the bad and the ugly. Actually, turn with me to Acts chapter, 18, Acts chapter 13. Just a, a, little, a little ways to your left, right before the book of Romans. And let's read through these verses I have been reading. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. So this is Paul in verse 38. He's speaking to all these people in the city, and this is what he says. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sin, and by him... Everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now go down to verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them. Uh, the next Sabbath, verse 43, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes, that means uh, a non-Jew person who used to attend the synagogue, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But with the good comes the bad and the ugly, verse 44. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken of by Paul. And so there you see the bad and the ugly. Uh, and so in one form, this very thing, the bad and the ugly, that you read here in verse 45, has happened at every church that was started that Paul started, but really every church that has ever been started and has declared the grace of God, that the good accompanied with the joy and the peace and the life, the bad and the ugly is just right there with it. Why? 
what could anyone anywhere possibly why why would they possibly have a problem with people for the first time understanding grace and 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 coming into a a place of peace and joy uh, in their lives why why is that why does this happen well the answer we read in second corinthians 11 verses 13 through 15 this morning because satan hates what happens in a man or woman's life when the burden of religion has been lifted when the walls of separation between men and god have been torn down when the shackles of and chains of sin have been cast off when the future of hell has been replaced by a future in heaven when the persistent nagging voice you got a problem with god disappears uh, when righteousness joy and peace settle into a human heart satan doesn't like that remember what jesus told paul when he sent him off jesus personally sent uh, paul off to these churches he said he said in acts 26 verse 18 he said i'm sending you to open their eyes to turn them from darkness to light from the power of satan to god Satan doesn't like it when people have been released from, saved from, taken from his power over them. He doesn't like it. And, and, and he doesn't give up without a fight. So when you see throughout the book of Acts this incredibly intense, this rabid reaction, this, this hatred just coming against things that all things good. And you wonder, well, why are these people losing it? Why this like over-the-top opposition? You know, chill out. What's going on here? This doesn't seem rational. It doesn't seem natural. It's not natural. It is supernatural. And again, that's why Paul describes these people coming against uh, Paul as ministers of the enemy of your souls, which have transformed themselves into ministers of light. And so again, Acts uh, uh, 13, verse 45, it says, When the Jews saw the multitude, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. That word blaspheming means speaking despising words. And then it says, And they opposed the things spoken by Paul. So the very things that people were just filled with joy about, all of a sudden these people are like coming against big time. Right in front of everyone. Just like wet, wet blanket. Here you go, you know, whoosh, you know, throwing it over the whole crowd. So they were contradicting what, uh, what Paul had said, verse uh, 45. No, 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 your problem is not gone. Uh, they were blaspheming Paul, despising words against him. You know, this guy Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. He's an imposter. No one really believes this guy. It says again, they spoke against his teaching. Uh, Jesus Christ doesn't justify everyone. Uh, does the word of God really say that? Remember what Satan said to Eve in the garden? Did God really say that, Eve? That's what Satan always does. Does the word of God really, is that really what it means? And so Paul, this happened to him in place after place after place. You know, keep in mind that these, this is huge nations, cities, countries that are just being held captive to the enemy for a long, long time. All of a sudden, the enemy is just waking up going, whoa, what is going on here? What is going on here? And so you see this like rabid reaction, this intense reaction. And so they're, they're, they're coming against the, not only the message, but the messenger, Paul. And so he's, putting him, he's put into a position where everywhere that he went, he had to defend himself with the very men and women that he oftentimes would bring out a bondage. He's having to defend himself. So that's your introduction to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's go back there. Verse 5, where I started reading this morning, is where he start, he's putting himself in a position where he, he feels like he needs to defend himself and just sort of remind the people in the church in Corinth because some people had come in, they were coming against them, they were coming against his message of grace. 
Jesus says, it is, when he, last thing Jesus said on the cross was, it is finished, meaning all the work needed to bring you into an eternal relationship with God, it's finished. I, Jesus, have done it. That's what he was, what he was saying in his last words on the cross. No, these people had come in and says, no, it's not finished. You've got to continue the work. You've got to try to perform. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to continue the work. Jesus, it, it is not finished. And, and so these people came in. They were criticizing Paul. And so this is where we pick up in verse 5. Paul says, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. We talked about this last week. Uh, the, in the Greek there, uh, some translations say super apostles. So what he's saying is that I'm not inferior to these guys uh, who are calling themselves uh, super apostles uh, or arch apostles, just like an archbishop is over uh, someone who's a bishop over other bishops. These people were saying, well, yeah, well Paul's an apostle. That's really nice. We're super apostles, and, and, and so uh, you need to listen to us. Paul is saying in verse 5, I'm not inferior to these guys. And then in verse uh, 6, he continues. He says, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, Paul was not a good speaker. <laughs> he was attacked for that. Um, he, scholars think he may have had a stutter and, and he may have really struggled just, um, you know, sometimes when, when he spoke and I just love what he says, the humility in verse 6. He says, well, you know, even though I'm untrained in speech, I'm not in knowledge. I may not be a good speaker, but I know the truth. And my ministry to you has been manifest in all things, he says in verse 6. And by that he means, look, Jesus actually um, told the Pharisees, he said, you're coming against me with your wisdom. You're coming against my wisdom. But let me tell you, wisdom will be justified by her children, meaning by the fruit of the life, the fruit of the life. It'll be justified by our children. So um, um, Paul is saying, look, I may not be a big, uh, good speaker, but my ministry is confirmed by joy, peace, long-suffering, humility, and kindness. And you know, I learned very early on as a Christian that finding a man or woman who can get up in a pulpit like this and just speak and do it really well is a dime a dozen. It is so easy to find someone who can get up in a pulpit like this and just dazzle people. It really is. What's not easy to find is someone who can not only declare the truth, but as Paul says in verse 6 there, but manifest in all things, meaning they have the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life. Meaning there's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That is the man of God or, or the woman of God we need to listen to. So Paul continues in verse 7. He says, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preach the gospel of God to you free of charge? He's reminding them here of his character. Remember, um, he's being attacked by people, and he's saying in this verse, listen, what I did for you, I did, the message of grace I presented to you, I did it for free. I never charged you a thing, even though the Bible's very clear that he has the right to, to get paid for what he's doing. The Bible says, don't muzzle out, you know, the ox when he's treading out grain, you know, uh, he has the right to be paid. He never accepted any money doing it. And he's saying, why? Because I, I loved you. <laughs> he was a tent maker. He, he, he made tents and then he sold them and he declared the word of God by night for free. Verse 8. I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. He's not literally meaning that he gets snuck in the back of the church and, you know, stole their offering box. What he's saying is that uh, he was, uh, other churches had given him, freely given him money. Look, Paul, we want to support you. Here, take, take money because we believe in your ministry. We know what you're doing. You're, you're teaching the message of grace that no one's ever heard of before. Take money. So he took that money and he, and he spent his time in Corinth and took nothing from them. He ministered for free, is, is, is what he is, is saying there. And 
You know, uh, by the way, you know, if, if this is a wonderful thing about not taking money when pastors don't take money uh, from their congregation is that, that they can be a lot bolder with the truth. You know, if people don't like what you're sharing from, from God's word, they can't say, well, you know, I'm going to take away your salary or I'm going to stop putting money, money in the offering box. You stop putting money in the offering box. I'm not getting anything from you anyway. And, and, and you know, uh, and, and, you know Stephanie, uh, Stephanie uh, this pastor growing up, he was a dear, dear man. He, he married us, and she had the same pastor 18 years growing up. And uh, I remember he retired, and he went into this problem church, this problem church that they were divisive, and there was some carnality there and fleshiness. And, and, and this guy was retired, and he would just go in there, and smack these people with the word of God. And they would g- have all this problem. And then he would say, what are you going to do? Fire me? I don't make any money from you. And he was just such a zealous man of God. And, and, uh, uh, and so I, I love him and appreciate him so much uh, about that. But anyway, so uh, verse 10, Paul is continuing on. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I love you, he's saying. But what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from these who desire an opportunity to be be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. In other words, I'm going to continue teaching the word of God for free. So these people who come in and take money from you every time they come, they leave a lot richer than what they came. I'm going to continue uh, preaching free of charge so that these other people who are attacking me, attacking my message, don't have the opportunity to say that they did it for the same reason I did it, which was for love, free of charge, is what he's saying. And then he says again in verse 13, we've read this uh, before, for such, he's talking about these people who are coming against the message of grace that it's the cross plus nothing that saves a person. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. So on the outside, they may look like an apostle, they may look like a pastor, they may look like a priest, but they're just a puppet of Satan. Verse 14, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his, Satan's, ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. You know, the the Bible says that we need to be discerning. We need to really think about and pray about what kind of messenger we are listening to, whether it's on TV or here this morning or anywhere. We need to be discerning because, as we just read, Satan will transform himself. He will use someone who looks to the world to be like an angel uh, of light. Your faith is going to be challenged. It's going to be attacked and it will be contradicted just like we read in Acts 13. It will be spoken against. It will be blasphemed or despised uh, is a more modern word for that by someone who at least on the outside they look like an angel of light. They look like an angel of light. Modern day angels of light are university professors or talk show hosts or journalists or people who set up, you know, these organizations with these really angel of light kind of names like organization for uh, fairness and justice. An organization for the separation of church and state. Oh, yeah, you can't do that. That's good, good. That angel of light, you know, sort of deal. And they, you know, and these people, they they will come off as as angels of light, um, but they will attack the message of the cross. You know, at the beginning of uh, his first letter of the Corinthians, Paul said in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. 
And that's all we do, he said. I came to you knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. We preach Christ crucified, it says in 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, To the Jews, that's offensive. To the Greek, it's foolishness. Well, guess what, brothers and sisters? Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Modern-day angels of light look at the cross, and it is offensive. It's foolish. They look at Jesus on the cross. The Bible says in Isaiah 52, 14, that Jesus' appearance on the cross was marred. It was sort of, it was, had been changed more than any other man. His form was more than the sons of men. By the time he was nailed to the cross, Jesus had been beaten so badly that he was beyond recognition, Isaiah 52, 14 says. And so modern day angels of like, and, and, and many of them are in denominations, in Christian denominations. They are speaking in churches around the city and in the country today. They will look at the, uh, at that mutilated, beaten body on the cross and the idea that their sin caused that. There's all this blood coming in this body, this bloody mess, you know, here on the cross they see. And the idea that their sin caused that is complete foolishness. <laughs> the thought that they or anyone is somehow personally responsible for that man hanging on the cross is offensive. And that's why you don't hear as much about the cross anymore. And, and people talk about, you know, what's up with this bloody religion? And, 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 and thinking they are an angel of light, they call it foolishness, they call it offensive, they replace it with something else. You know, in my 300-year-old devotional I've been reading and sharing with you lately, um, recently there was this entry, speaking like a good Puritan. What more, what could be more abominable than sin? Since it cannot be taken away except by the blood of the Son of God. I just hope you let that sink in. What could be more abominable than sin since it cannot be taken away except by the blood of the Son of God? You know, there's a lot of problems and a lot of situations and issues that come up that man can fix. The one thing he can't, the one problem he can't solve is his own sin. It is so abominable before a holy God. The Bible says God's a consuming fire. That it cannot be taken away except by the blood of the Son of God. The precious blood of God's Son. But listen, there are angels of light working 24-7 trying to convince the world, trying to convince you, uh, convince me that surely sin is not that bad. They have taken the word out of their vocabulary. They call sin a disease. They call it a biological predisposition. Uh, in many instances, uh, that not only have they said it's not bad, they have called it good. The Bible says in the latter days, uh, men will call evil good and good evil. And, and, and so, and people, you know, who, who to the world, they, they look like angels of light. They're contradicting the word of God. They're despising it, speaking against it. And what happens? What happens when that happens? You, me, uh, all these things start making a regular appearance and really in the thought life of people even in the church, in you and me. Spiritual warfare. Paul says in Ephesians 6, your battle is not against flesh and blood. It's uh, not against people you can see, hear, and touch. It's against spiritual hosts of wickedness, he says. And, and so what happens when our minds start getting inundated with this stuff, whether it's just thought life 
Satan deals just in the realm of thought or whether it's a, a, an angel of light who has flesh and bones. What happens? Well, let's continue to read in verses 16 through 20. Paul says, I say again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but at as it were, foolishly, in this confidence of boasting. Meaning, look, this is not how I like representing the Lord, but you've uh, forced me into defending myself here. Verse 18, he says, Seeing that many boast according to their flesh, and many boast according to uh, their outward appearances, I will also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. And here's the key, verse 20. For you put up with it. What are they putting up with? All this religion, all this, uh, these attacks on their faith, all this other stuff that's coming in and, and casting doubts or adding to the, the simple message of grace. grace. Verse 20 says, for you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts you, or if one strikes you on the face. So what is he talking about there? This is not an easy chapter to, to, to read through here. Verse 20, he's talking about the very things that happen when we start listening to those voices, whether they're angels of light or whether it's just thoughts coming into our mind, adding to or taking away from the message of grace that we're justified by God. He loves us. We, we can go right into his thro the throne of grace, right into the throne room and enjoy him and love him. We are, his, uh, we are his children. Anything that takes away from that or questions that or questions the basis that is the blood of Jesus that we can go into the throne room, anything, what does it do? Verse 20, first it puts you into bondage. It says, it says, for you put up with it if one brings you into bondage. He's saying, look, these religious people have come in. They're attacking me. They've put you into bondage, and you're actually taking it. You're putting up with them. So anytime that, you know, whether it's, it's some religious person sort of adding to the cross, no, it's not finished. You have to continue the work yourself, or they're just questioning the cross. It brings us into bondage, meaning we're, we're separated from that fellowship with God. We lose the joy. A wet blanket gets thrown over our, our, our joy in our life. Next thing it says, if one devours you. Anytime we start holding on to something that is opposed to the word of God, it winds up sucking the life out of us. If we give in to this message that, look, in order to be justified by God, you need to pray this much, you need to read the Bible this much, you need to go to church this much, it will suck the life out of you. Paul says, it will, these people are devouring you, and you're putting up with it, he says. And then he goes on, it says, and if one takes from you, we talked about this last week, the Proverbs say, fire never says enough. Well, ne neither do the enemies of God, neither do human man-made religions or philosophy or angels of life. They, they will always take, 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 take from you. But the message of grace is exactly the opposite. It's about God giving, 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 giving from you. And he's saying, and you're putting up with it. And it goes on to say, if one exalts himself, in other words, the people who espouse these messages that are opposed to the grace of God, it's always about lifting them up, exalting them, and, and Jesus and his worth and the blood of Jesus and the, the worth of the blood of Jesus, it's putting that down. And he's saying here, these things are exalt, these people, they're exalting themselves. And again, he's saying, and you're putting up with this. And finally, he says, if one strikes you on the face, you put up with it. And anytime you let yourself be pushed off that place of grace where there is direct contact, direct connection between you and the Lord, it's the equivalent of being beaten up. 
I mean, if there's anything that I see that um, it damages people, it's when they, they get away from the simple message of grace. That Jesus died for you, he was raised for, your, uh, raised for you, and he's poured out life to you, and now you can just rest. Jesus, come, Jesus said, come all to me who, who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. But so oftentimes, you know, what will we do? We'll be pulled right back out of that and, and, and we'll be beaten up because that's what the world does with all its philosophies and its standards that it puts on our lives. That's what man-made religion does. It, it's like striking us. Boom, 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 boom. We get all beaten up. And that's why I love the cross because you can go just right back to the cross. You know, it's been said at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Everyone's on an equal plane. We're all in the same place. No one's better than anyone else. It levels us all out, and, and, and we can, there's rest there. And then he says in verse 21, to our shame, I say, that we, I say that we were too weak for that, but in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. So he's just boldly reminding them of the grace of God. And so what should you do when you find yourself giving in to sort of fears in your thought life or you've been reading so much stuff and there's doubts coming into your mind and, or, or there's you know, this one religion or this one pastor priest is saying, no, uh, Jesus on the cross, his blood, that's not good enough. You also have to be baptized in this way or you have to... Uh, 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 pray this way or you have to become a member of this particular church or, or whatever. What do you do with that? And, and, and when, you're, when, when your mind uh, starts getting sucked into that and you go into bondage and you're being devoured by it, by it you're being taken by it, verse 20. It, it's exalting itself over you and you're being struck down by it. What do you do? You know, we talked about that a few weeks ago, one chapter back, Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for, God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What do you do when your thought life just starts pulling you down into bondage? Verse 20 of chapter 11, don't put up with it anymore. Don't ever assume you just got to put up with it. God's giving you the grace, the power, the Holy Spirit to just put it to death. Take captive that imagination and tear it down. And that's just the privilege of being born again. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Lord. And he, he, he wants us just pulling it down. Let me close with this. You know, in, when I... I became a Christian about 20 years ago, and I remember I, I first became a Christian when I was uh, reading uh, the book of John, and a friend of mine ha had been just nagging me, <laughs> you know, you need, to be, you need to walk with the Lord. You need to understand the word of God. And, and I was like, the guy was just, oh, what a hassle he was. You know, he, he, but he was so good at being a hassle. <laughs> and um, I'm still very good friends with him to this day. He was up here a few months back. But he gave me um, this little commentary in the book of John. It was a little commentary of the book of John, meaning... It was, you know, you'd read a few Bible verses and then you'd read what this little commentary said about the Bible verses and, and I started reading through it and my, my heart was just totally captured by what I was reading for the first, what I understood for the first time ever and I realized, wow, I, I really, I, I, don't know, I don't understand all this stuff, but I know one thing. What my life has been up to this point, my relationship with Jesus and what is these, this book of John is asking me are two completely different things. I need to completely embrace Jesus for everything who he is. And I, sometimes I go back into the book of John, and I'm like, what, what was it that turned me around, you know? It was the Holy Spirit. But, you know, what verses uh, uh, might it have been? And I, I don't really know because uh, that was a long time ago, and 
Um, but anyway, I, I, I think sometimes, well, maybe it was uh, John chapter 6. And I just want to close with this. You don't have to turn there. But in John chapter 6, is, is, if, you, if you read that chapter and you're not walking, and you're not a Christian, and you don't walk away bothered and troubled, something is really wrong with you. Uh, because what had happened, Jesus had just fed 5,000 people with what, five loaves of bread and two fish. And he fed them this incredible miracle. And then they were gathering around him so much, he, the disciples take off. They go to the other side of the lake. Actually, he walks on the sea after them. That's that story where he's walking on water. He gets to the other side. These people, this, this group, there's 5,000 people. Actually, there's 5,000 men. It says not including men and women. So it's many, many more. Some, some think it was 10,000, 15,000 people. They find out where the, he is. They make a beeline to where he is. And um, they... Uh, when Jesus sees them, he says, most assuredly I say to you, this is John 6, 26, you're following me not because of uh, what you saw, but because, or, or what you were taught really is what he's saying, but because you ate and had your full. Do not labor for food which, which, which goes away, which perishes, but labor for the food which endures to eternal life. And, and then the, it goes, what Jesus says goes in one ear, it goes out the, uh, out the uh, other, and they say, well, Jesus, what sign will you perform for us? What miracle will you do for us? You remember our fathers in the Old Testament? They got manna from heaven. Well, do the same for us now. We're hungry. And so uh, Jesus told them, he's, he says, look, I am the bread of life. Me. You're seeking after you know, bread, loaves of bread or fish that you can put in your mouth and, and, and be physically nourished with. But he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And it says the Jews complained about him because he had said this. And he, then, he, he, you know, he repeats himself. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, but they died. They're dead. He says, the bread, if you eat of me... He says, you will never die. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And then he says, and the bread that I give you is my flesh, which I shall give the, to, the, to the world for life to the world. And then it says, then the people started arguing amongst themselves. How can this man give us his own flesh to eat? Now, you would think at that point Jesus would have kind of calmed down. He would have laid off. This is sounding a little strange and weird. You know, what do you mean you give us your flesh? But instead, he goes deeper. He gets, you could say, weirder. Verse 53, he says, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in you. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And this was just too much for them. And then but what he goes on to say is, look, I, I'm not referring to my physical body that you're eating or my physical blood. I, I, I am um, talking about a commitment that you're making to the living God. I'm the son of God, and you need to make a commitment to the living God. But this was just too much for them. It says in verse 60, it says, many of his disciples, when they heard this, uh, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And then it says, from that time forth, many walked away from him and walked with him no more. It was just too much. In other words, it was foolishness to them. <laughs> it was offensive to them. You mean the, that beaten, mutilated body on the cross? I have some responsibility for it? See, for, for, that's, that's foolishness. That's offensive. That's crazy. See, for thousands of years, people have been offended at the cross. And, the, and they've just... The, the, the cross has been foolishness uh, to them. And so... Everyone walks away except his small band of disciples. Remember, there have been like 10,000 people. I'm sorry, I don't see too many churches of 10,000. You know, very rarely are the pastors okay with 98% of their congregations just taken off. 
But Jesus was perfectly comfortable with it. But he does uh, turn to his disciples and he says to them, well, do you also want to go away? And Simon Peter answered him saying, Lord, where would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And that's where God wants you to be. God wants you to be in that place where even when you're hearing things that are confusing or disturbing, even when unbelief starts attacking you, even when uh, man-made religious angels of light come in and want to add to the word of God and it starts, uh, you know, you, you start saying, oh, I just don't know um, whether I can uh, take this anymore and Satan has you in sort of a fog of spiritual warfare. This is where you need, you and I need to be. Where you're just asking yourself, well, <laughs> where am I going to go? I've been out in the world, I've been there, done that. Where, where am I going to go? Don't let anyone or anything pull you away from that place of grace. Where, where that place where you're just, Jesus says in John 10, a few chapters later, I have you in the palm of my hand. No one's going to... No one can cast you or snatch you away from that place. Don't let anyone knock you out of that place where, where you have that, just that deep sense, you know? I don't know everything that's going on in my mind and my life right now, but wh where else am I going to go? Such a safe place. And just a few chapters later, the disciples, the confusion has gone. They're, they're walking in joy. They're walking in peace. They're walking with life. And that's how it always happens. We live in a fallen world where, um, which, will, which will mess with our minds so much. But God is faithful. He's faithful as we stand his, uh, in the palm of his hand. He's faithful for, uh, to restore us. Sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And so don't let anyone knock you off the place of grace grace remember this g-r-a-c-e turn around g-r-a-c-e god's riches at christ's expense remember that god's riches you can have god's riches g-r at christ's expense it's an acronym that's just wonderful to live by just remember there are riches that we can have in this life now present time they're god's riches but they all come at christ's expense never take away from what the cross alone has purchased for you Always keep that front and center, remembering. And Jesus said, when I am lifted up, all men will be drawn unto me. Just always go back to the foot of the cross where everyone is on equal plane, covered with the righteousness of Christ. With the worship team, please come up. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word here, Lord, and I pray for every man, woman, and child in here, Lord. That they would grow, Lord, and be filled with the knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That they would know you, Lord. That they'd be filled by your spirit with power in, the, in their inner man. That Christ and the value that and what he purchased for them on the cross, that they would uh, dwell in, uh, that he would dwell in their hearts through faith and that they would understand how wide and long, high and deep is his love for them, that they would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of you, God. Lord Jesus, where would we go if we left you? There is no other place. 
There is no other place, Lord, where we're going to find life. Lord, wherever we go, that, that, that nagging problem is, is just going to reemerge in our life. We like it right here at the foot of the cross where that nagging voice has disappeared, that the peace that passes under uh, all understanding has descended on us and the joy of the Lord is our strength, Lord. We all want to stay here, Lord. We understand, Father, and we declare as a church body this morning that it's by your grace that we stay here, that we're not pushed off, that we're not moved off. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us all things we need for a life of godliness. Everything that we need to stay in this place before you, Lord Jesus, and walk with you, you've given to us. We thank you for that. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who's never given their heart and life and mind to you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would complete the work of salvation in their life today, Lord, where they simply believe that message of grace that by Jesus, everyone is justified by God for all the things they could not be justified by the law. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, please rise. We're going to close in worship.